This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic to cosplay to Schitt's Creek to Supernatural and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this special interview episode of It's a Fandom Thing. On this episode, I am very, very honored to be speaking with Randy Schmidt. Randy Schmidt is a producer and writer, and he's a producer on the new documentary, Karen Carpenter, Starving for Perfection. He is also the author of the 2010 national bestseller, Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. So I was very, very honored to sit down with him. I think this is a fantastic conversation. The documentary is fantastic as well. So please seek that out and watch it. Uh, And thank you again, Randy. This documentary was so fascinating to me because I honestly didn't know much about Karen Carpenter. I like, I knew the music and I knew how she died and that was kind of it. And I know, you know, a lot about, about Karen Carpenter. You of course, write Wrote the uh, novel, Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. So what is it about her and her music and her story that inspired you to write that novel and then continue to visit and become a producer on this documentary and all of that? Um, I was a 13-year-old kid and just getting into choral music in my, in my school and hearing the Carpenter's music for the first time around that time was, was really intriguing. Hearing those stacked, layered, overdubbed harmony, harmony sounds um, really connected with me. But it was the um, TV movie about Karen that aired that year, 1989, that introduced me all at once, both to Karen's voice and her story. And to watch it unfold over those two hours was really eye-opening. And I'd never had a voice affect me in the way that, that hers did, and, and still haven't had any that have come close, really, to what her voice means to me. And I was immediately intrigued. I wanted to find out everything that I had missed, having been born right in the middle of the Carpenter's heyday. And so I found myself the next day in our local library looking at the old People magazine articles, and the research really began right away. Um, And then fast forward a number of years later, I was sort of the internet Carpenter's guru. (laughs) Um, (laughs) by, By default, nobody else had claimed that title yet and brought a lot of Carpenter's fans together from all around the world when, you know, everybody thought I'm the only one that's left or I'm the only Carpenter's fan out there. And then, you know, back in the mid 1990s, when people started getting online and realizing, oh, there's a bunch of us. So that those people that I met from around the world and many that I'm still in touch with after all these years 
they really encouraged and prompted me along the way to keep researching, never with the idea of a book or definitely not with a film. It was just more for my own curiosity along the way. And it finally grew into what became um, Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter. I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read. I kept waiting for someone else to write it. And when they didn't, I ended up taking matters into my own hands. Well, and it's interesting you say that, especially about finding other people and finding like a community through that. And I think that's what can be so powerful about any kind of art, any kind of media is, you know, if you feel like you can find like a place, like a home almost. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you kind of found that among the other fans of her work and her songs and her voice in particular, and then being like, okay, no one else is writing this. I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and write it and write the book that you wanted to read. I think that's exactly. interesting also to put it that way. So it's like writing that for yourself, writing. Well, I had this opportunity to, um, to conduct several interviews with childhood friends of Karen's or um, people who worked in the studio with her. And I really didn't know what I was doing it for other than, like I said, my own curiosity, but then I would start to share these stories with other fans and they would be like, how do you know that? Or who told you that? Oh, well, you know, it's on a tape in this box in the, in the closet or on the shelf or whatever. And after a while, people started saying, people don't know these things. You really should put these things on in writing or put them online or whatever. And um, so that was, I guess, kind of what, what started it just um, realizing that I had accumulated even just at that point, a small group of um, of interviews and things. That's what came together to start the book in the beginning. Wow, that's incredible, though, that you were able to get that get that access and find those things. And very resourceful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and doing this, doing this documentary, you already knew so much about Karen and and her life and everything. Did you? learn more about her with this documentary too? Were there things, was there anything that maybe surprised you that you hadn't known before? The recordings that we were able to find of, of Karen speaking, that really comes to mind, first of all, is the, the biggest um, thing about the documentary that I guess sets it apart from the rest of my research, because I had had a lot of radio interviews and, and things like that, that I'd collected over the years, but I had you know, transcribed them for print. And with this, I was able to go back to those to those recordings. And in many cases, dig even further back and go and find the people who interviewed her and say, is there any chance you've got, you know, the original raw recordings somewhere? And in, in a number of cases, they did. And um, some of them, you know, several hours of um, interview footage of both Karen and Richard, and then some that Karen did on her own. And so to be able to dig into those and and find these recordings that nobody had ever even heard of, or maybe they'd only heard two or three minutes of it in a radio interview that had been edited down, you know, for final, um, the final production or whatever. But that wealth of, of audio interviews really became something that we could use as a through line in this documentary where Karen sort of narrates her own life story. Yeah, and those interviews, hearing those interviews, because I know it says in the documentary that a lot of stuff had never been heard, like you said before. And I think what's so powerful about when you hear interviews on tape like that or that were recorded from a long time ago, especially from someone who is no longer with us, is being able to hear the voice 
because that adds more meaning, I think, to the words you're hearing, because sometimes you can just read what someone says and it's like, okay, whatever. And then you hear the voice and it's like, oh, there's something more to what she is saying than maybe even the words were. Well, and for somebody who had such a recognizable voice, I mean, that's, that's such an important part of Karen's story anyway. And so then to hear in her talking voice and to, to kind of get acquainted with um, the way that she speaks and get to know her sense of humor a little bit here and there is, is really special. And I think it gives this documentary an intimacy that maybe some of the others prior to this have not had. Yeah, the intimacy is the perfect way to put the way put that because that's definitely the way it makes you feel is like you're almost like a fly on the wall getting to hear this stuff that you've never yeah. been able to hear about somebody who, you know, I mean, the the big thing I took away from this is I and I don't know if you see if you see Karen this way, but is somebody who was just gifted with this amazing voice that touched so many people, but I got the feeling that maybe she didn't even realize how amazing her talent was. Do you think that's true? That was a question that I asked um, her best friend. I I got the opportunity to interview, you know, of course, Olivia Newton-John is her most famous best friend, but um, there was a woman by the name of Frenda, like Brenda, but with an F, Frenda. (laughs) And that was Karen's day-to-day best friend that she would call for everything. And I asked Frenda the same thing. Did Karen truly know how special she was both as a person as and as a talent and she talked specifically about the voice and everything and she said that she knew that she could touch people with her voice she knew that people were affected by it and moved by her voice but she doesn't she didn't feel like she ever truly understood the magnitude of her talent and that she was one of the greatest singers of the century you know, I think a lot of that we we cover in, in the doc too, where she was from the time she was a little girl, sort of trained to support Richard because her brother was the one that was thought to have all the talent and everybody's going to support him and this career path that he's on. And even when she started to show promise as a drummer and then right around the same time as a, a singer, it still wasn't valued within the family in the way that would give her that confidence because it was seen more like, oh, well, now she can drum in Richard's jazz trio, you know, that yeah. his name is part of, or now she can sing these demos for the music that Richard's writing because, you know, he's going to be discovered soon, that kind of thing. And so it was sort of a rude awakening for for the mom who had been pushing brother all these years to find out that Karen was the one people were interested in. And then, of course, she really pushed to make sure that Richard was involved in anything that that Karen could lead him on. But they were they were an inseparable entity as as carpenters. They really they had to have that start. There really couldn't have been one without the other. And um, I just wish that she had had that chance to really break off and do her own thing like she had started and attempted to do with the solo album that came later in her life. Yeah, that part of the documentary really um, broke my heart in a lot of ways because it felt like, you know, I mean, they, 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 Richard and her were very inseparable, were really close. And it's not at all a knock on him, of course, but it felt like that was finally her chance to sort of um, explore herself more and get more in touch with who she was. And then it just seemed like it just kind of just went away. And that, that just really broke 
my heart because I think it would have been interesting to see what she could have done on her own. Absolutely. You know, I get asked quite a, quite often, what do you think of the um, the Karen Carpenter solo album? And, you know, there's not a we've only just begun on that album, but that's not the point. And I love the album because I hear Karen exploring. I hear her trying new things and and spreading her wings and just seeing what she could do. And she she so idolized her friend Olivia. And um, I think she wanted to do something in that vein where she could, you know, sing songs that were maybe a little more sexy <laughs> or, um, you know, it, it goes to show too. She had the photographer who did Olivia's totally hot um, album cover, shoot the, the pictures for this album that, you know, wouldn't be released for another 16 years after it was intended. She looked at those pictures, her friend, um, the, the wife of Phil Ramone, who produced the album, said that she looked at those pictures and said, wow, I really look pretty. And, you know, she she wasn't all that confident about her her appearance. And to have that that moment where she had a wow moment about herself and then to have that album pushed back and said, you know, it's really not releasable as it is. You should go back and work on it more or whatever. But it was deemed, you know, not, not important at the time, which was really a crushing blow to her, I think. Yeah, I bet, especially with, because, you know, um, everybody knows about her struggles with her eating disorders. And, and so then to be able to see herself and actually say, I'm pretty and liking what she sees, Mm -hmm. and then to have, you know, that ripped away too. So on top of it, the fact of loving how she not only not only the songs and the everything like that, but also loving how she looked on that. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of like an additional blow to that already hurt, almost little child inside. I kind of absolutely kind of like so. Yeah, and I feel too that you know, just a few months after the disappointment of that album is when she got um, into this whirlwind relationship that turned out to be, as several people said in the documentary, really a disaster of a of a marriage. And I can't help but think that she threw herself into that relationship, trying to make something work and have some control over something in her life. She had poured heart and soul into that album. It was kind of taken from her. And the next thing was, okay, well, I'll get married and I'll start that part of my life. And of course, we know, having watched the the documentary, that that was um, yet another crushing instance um those those last few years i don't think that she could could crawl out from under all of the the heaviness that was going on yeah that was that was sad too just having that that betrayal and having someone not be who they said they would be they were too that as well do you think and i'm curious i don't know um because you know she also was known for having lots of like stuffed animals like that and a lot of like um also doing a lot with disney as -hmm. far as the stuffed animals went and I was wondering, do you think there was a part of her that with that was maybe trying to recapture a little bit of her childhood? That was kind of where the the idea for the title Little Girl Blue for my book came from, because I kept hearing from her closest friends, both Olivia and that the woman Frenda that I mentioned earlier, that she was very childlike in a lot of ways. And I mean, I think here we are talking about fandom and that sort of thing on here, and, and we kind of understand that. Um, when you when you get you know a little obsessed over a certain thing, collecting this or collecting that, 
So I don't know that that's all that unusual, but with her, she became famous right around the time, you know, she was still a teenager and still living at home until her mid twenties. And so I don't know that she ever really um, grew up in that way. She kind of grew up in, in the spotlight and at a time that other people were going out and meeting friends and kind of becoming who they're going to be as an adult she was already on the road and traveling and didn't have time to really build those relationships. So she probably did still cling to some of the things that were important to her as a, as a young person, but she loved Disneyland. She loved um, Mickey Mouse. She collected um, even antique toys at that time, things from the, the 1930s. And so she had a, a wonderful collection of, of all those things. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I do think that she, never really got to grow up fully and um in a lot of ways you know her growth was stunted and unfortunately she was never able to really recover from that and going a little bit to to the body image thing and how that is such a huge part of any entertainment industry sadly do you hope that perhaps people in the industry or people that are struggling, they'll, they'll read your novel or watch the documentary. And do you hope it'll give them some kind of, I don't know, different perspective or maybe some hope or maybe even change some minds on what we should be valuing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a cautionary tale, of course, because um, we each have our, our own families with our own issues and things like that. But when you when you look at someone like Karen, she was a very tactile, demonstrative kind of person that, you know, wanted to be hugged and wanted to be told, I love you. And she was born into a family where that just wasn't the way that they did things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's cautionary in the way that maybe find out the best ways to to love the people around you, to support them and encourage them, even if they may not, um, you may not understand them. You know, I think with Karen, she was, she was a tomboy. She was a, a drummer during a time that girls just didn't play drums. That, that was what she heard over and over. And instead of really them embracing that and wow, we've got this phenomenal singer who happens to be the drummer. They just thought, no, 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 we have to get her out of that position. We have to get her out front and make her the girl singer because that's what girls are supposed to do. They're not supposed to be sitting behind the drums. And so I think there was a lot of her that was, maybe she was made to feel ashamed of, you're not supposed to like this, or you're not supposed to do this or that. And that was one of the ways I felt like I connected her with her as a kid. You know, I was a kid that grew up in a farm town in Oklahoma and I had a Wizard of Oz museum in my backyard. <laughs> so speaking of fandom, yeah. um, but I was I was told not so much by my parents, but just the society that I was born into, that you shouldn't like these things or that or boys don't do this or that. Or here's the way you're supposed to walk like a man or talk like a man. And Karen got that from people. They they taught her. Here's the way a lady walks. Her friend told me when she first met her that Karen walked across the stage like a Mack truck. And what's wrong with that? That was who she was, but it was such a different time. And so I I do hope now that people realize that having given her an opportunity to be who she was and celebrate that maybe she walked across the stage like a Mack truck, then that's okay. 
And instead of trying to hone and refine her, and this is how you need to talk like a lady. And it just makes me think of what if she had been really allowed to be who she was. Yeah, that being allowed to be who she was, that whole thing. And I think that's something that still people struggle with today mm-hmm. still. People want us to be who they want us to be or who the the image that they have in their mind for us. And I think yeah. that that was coming at Karen from all directions, both with her mom, you know, that she had this, this girl that was um, not your traditional 1950s, 1960s girly girl. And that was difficult for Agnes because she expected to have a girly girl that wore the pink frilly dresses. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, to think, hopefully we're in a, in a better place than we were then. I mean, I do think we are of understanding the uniqueness and, and those things, you know, me as a, I'm an elementary music teacher and I have kids that come to me and they're being made fun of for this or that, or being called names. And the encouragement is that, you know, those are the kids that are going to do something special with their life. The, the, these kids that are now being made fun of for being different, it's that thing, it's that, you know, playing the drums as a girl in the 1960s that makes you important and makes, you know, sets you apart from everybody else. And um, I think we realize that a little more now than back in Karen's day. And I wish she had had that kind of support and encouragement instead of trying to mold and shape her into what everybody else wanted her to be. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it's definitely changed and improved and gotten better. And that embracing that uniqueness and embracing the differences and stuff instead of uh, shaming people for. Absolutely. For yeah. I do felt, she, I, I think she felt ashamed of who she naturally, her natural leanings, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know this is probably going to be an impossible question for you to answer, but, and maybe just three, but what three songs uh, mean the most to you or touch you the most? When I'm asked my favorite, it's um, Superstar. The Don't You Remember You Told Me You Loved Me Baby. Sometimes I have to quantify that because people are like, Superstar. But that that song has everything. And um, it's I, I really love Karen's husky, younger voice. That's another thing. Her, her voice changed a little bit over the years, too, as they began to say, you know, walk this way, talk this way she did start to sing and maybe for lack of a better term, maybe more feminine way because early on she, she had a a husky kind of cry to her voice that wasn't present necessarily in some of the the later recordings. So superstar. Another favorite of mine is only yesterday. It was a hit in the summer that I was born. And um, with that one, it's mainly because there's one line that she sings that, or a, several lines, but when she sings, I found my home here in your arms, nowhere else on earth I'd I'd rather be. Um, the lyrics there are just beautiful, and she just inhabits them in such a beautiful way. And then sort of an unknown or lesser known um, song, it was a, a flip side for a, a single called Road Ode. And Road Ode is sort of talking about the struggles of being on the road and not being able to to be with uh, your family and loved ones and that sort of thing and empty cars and um, hotel rooms and all of those kinds of things. So that one touches me because it seems a little bit autobiographical. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was like, I wonder if it's going to be able to answer this one. <laughs> yeah. I have too many is the problem. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and then, and then finally, and I, I like to ask this of everybody because I think uh, through art and when you're creating art and because writing a book, writing a book, that's art and exploring that, I think we always can learn something new about ourselves. And so was there something new you learned about yourself or even music through this documentary as well? I, I think with this, this was really my first foray into to filmmaking. And um, I was guided and uh, and taught along the way by some really amazing people. And I've always been interested in in filmmaking. I've, I've felt like my writing style was was very much like a, a kind of a movie documentary in my mind or something like that. And just to have the opportunity to put that down now on paper and start um, you know, taking the the bits and pieces of everything that all of these different um, interviewees said and finding the way to smoothly transition from one to the next and who's going to tell this part of the story and that part of the story. I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity to um, to do this and to be guided through it and hope that it's something I can do again at some point because it's been it's been really rewarding, especially seeing the audiences that are now being moved by the story that they're seeing on the screen. That's really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a really, really good documentary. And Thank like you. I said, I wasn't as familiar except for, of course, just the more tragic side and knew of course the songs, but um, so I think, I really think this will touch a lot of people and hopefully people can also learn a bit about themselves too. I think the mm -hmm. best art does that. So yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much, Randy. It was really nice virtually meeting you and speaking with you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Randy, for sitting down with me. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And I really think this documentary is absolutely fantastic. So once again, please go watch that documentary. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. On TikTok at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us via our website, It's a Fandom Thing Pod.com. Click the Contact Us button there and that'll shoot me an email and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.